This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 98, Cowboys. I am Hal Hammonds and I am a Citizen of Heaven and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Cowboys are a part of American history and even more than that, American folklore. It's a lifestyle, play by your own rules, answer to your own conscience, and ride quietly off into the sunset at the end of the day. Noble hero or ruthless outlaw? Depends on who's making the movie. This week we will discuss the difference between herding cattle and tending sheep, the legacy of Texas legend George Roy Bean, the music of Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings, and why my daughter beats me regularly in my favorite game, and the surprising reason that upsets me. Let's start with what I've been preaching. For Christmas this year, I was given a couple of volumes of the simplified cowboy version, which I'm not sure exactly it would be fair to say it claims to be the Bible. That might be an overstatement, but it is in the form of the Bible anyway, and in many ways it resembles the Bible, the books of Mark and James, particularly in Proverbs. Taylor got them for me for Christmas. She's been looking forward to this for a long time, and the simplified cowboy version deserves far more attention than we're going to be able to give it here. But one of the trademarks of this version is whenever sheep are found in the Bible, and as you well know, they're all over the Bible, the simplified cowboy version will substitute cattle because that's what cowboys do. Cowboys tend to cattle. And I don't think that the point is that it's six of one and half a dozen of the other. I think the point is just more to make it relatable to this imaginary cowboy who's reading the Bible at this particular time. And I understand that, and I don't take the simplified cowboy version for any more than it actually is. But I do want to emphasize a little bit here the difference, and there are real differences, between cattle and sheep, especially from the standpoint of the one who is the custodian of them. Cowboys, cattle hands, cow herders are those ones who who drive sheep. We've all seen the westerns. We've seen Red River and the Cowboys and all the other John Wayne movies where they, they head them up and move them along. That is part of our national culture, far more present in movies than it was in actual history, but that's another story. Shepherding is very, very different for a variety of reasons, but especially when we're talking about those who tend to the sheep. The handling of sheep that we see in the Bible and to a certain degree even that we see in the modern day, even with modern customs, differs widely from the customs of those who tend cattle because sheep have a very different mentality than cattle. Cattle basically go where they are told to go, and if they are not told to go, they won't go. Sheep form a bond with the shepherd. Jesus emphasizes this, especially in John chapter 10. I'll start reading verse number 14. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep, but I have other sheep that are not from the sheep pen. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. There there will be one flock, one shepherd. That is the role of the shepherd in culture of that day. And again, to a certain degree, even today, we have shepherds that work the same sort of way. And it is not the way that cattle hands tend cattle. We know about cattle drives. Somebody gets behind, somebody goes in front to make sure they don't go off the way, and they just push the cattle in the direction that the cattle are supposed to go. Shepherds go with the sheep. They form a relationship. I know my own and my own know me. If a cattle hand quits in the middle of a drive, you go into town, you find another cattle hand. It's not that big of a deal. A connection to the cattle is irrelevant. You probably couldn't form a bond with a cow if you wanted to. 
Sheep instinctively look for personal leadership. They look for a relationship. And that's what Jesus forms with us. He is not simply telling us, go where I say go, stop where I say stop. He loves us. He is connected to us. He is not a hireling. He is the one who cares about the sheep, and the sheep, in return, learn to care for the shepherd. It doesn't necessarily happen overnight, but it comes to happen. There is a real connection, just as we have with our Lord and Savior. We believe that he has our best interest at heart, and therefore, if we are asked to go through the valley of the shadow of death, as it were, using the terminology from Psalm 23, we are willing to go there because he is going with us. That doesn't make it less dangerous necessarily, but we feel comfortable in his care and we we have confidence that it's going to work out all right, that the shepherd has our back. In the same way, he doesn't hurt us along. He doesn't push us like cowhands would push cattle. Oftentimes that very terminology is used. We got to push the cattle. You don't push sheep. The shepherd goes out in front The sheep gravitate toward him. They naturally go where he wants to go. He is walking among us. Skipping ahead a little bit to verse number 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. This is the confidence that we can have under his care that although the sheep may be desired by the enemy, which is to say the devil, the enemy sees us, he values us, he wants to take them away, but this shepherd is ultimately capable. No one will snatch them out of my hand. If we want to have a discussion about whether the sheep can rebel and, and reject the shepherd, that's another conversation. But as far as the capability and the personality and the will of the shepherd, that is unquestioned. No one is going to steal us away from him. He loves us. He cares for us. He is determined that we are going to succeed. And that is an excellent pattern for leaders of local congregations, local flocks, if you will. Peter calls himself a shepherd of the sheep. He was told at the end of the book of John, John chapter 21, that he was supposed to tend sheep. And I suspect at least in part, this is what Jesus meant. He knew that Peter himself would be an overseer of local Christians. And as such, Peter exhorts others, fellow shepherds, he says, to submit to the chief shepherd in their dealings with the sheep. When we follow after Jesus, when we trust in Jesus, that means that if we are going to have custody of souls, if we're going to be a parent, if we're going to be a a local overseer, whatever it happens to be, any relationship that we have where we have authority, we're going to show that authority in love, in kindness, in patience, in selflessness, because that's the kind of shepherding Jesus showed to us. And that's the kind of shepherding we want to show to other people. This is what the shepherd does, not necessarily the cattle hand, but we don't want to be the cattle hand. We want to be in the hands of the shepherd and we want to be shepherds ourselves. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. The countdown toward episode 100 has begun. I'm looking forward to that very much. I hope you are as well. I've already planned to do an episode of my favorites. And how exactly I'm going to approach my favorite book, I still haven't worked out exactly how that's going to happen. But I thought about that a little bit in preparation for this episode and the book that I had settled on. I was in the Texas history section of a used bookstore in the area and looking for something that I might be able to use for the podcast. And I stumbled across Law West of the Pecos. It was a a small book. 
it was, I think it was about $9 or so, which is more than I would like to spend for a book of this size, but seemed to fit the bill anyway. And Judge Roy Bean has always been a topic of interest, as he is to pretty much anybody in the state of Texas. And so I picked the book up and very quickly decided this is awful. This may very well be the worst written book I have ever read in my life. I stood there in the middle of the Texas history section of Half Price Books and read the entire book. It was 88 pages long. That includes margins. That includes illustrations. There just wasn't much in it at all. And what there was in there was repetitive. I was very disappointed that I didn't get more of an insight into this incredible character in Texas history, and Texas legend, really. But the idea of Judge Roy Bean and his court is a, a fascinating story, how he administered law west of the Pecos and what it meant to have law west of the Pecos. With regard to Judge Bean, it basically meant collecting fines whenever he possibly could. One of the most notorious examples of this, he had heard that a Mexican had turned up dead in town. He was over at the mortuary, and he showed up, and he noticed that the man had in his pocket $20 in cash, and he was carrying a pistol. And so on the spot, he fined him for carrying a concealed weapon and administered a $20 fine, basically took the money and put it in his pocket. That's the way Judge Roy Bean's court worked, typically. He collected a lot of fines because he had bills to pay. And it's not too cynical of us, I think, to see that there is a certain self-serving element in that sort of law keeping and law administering, that that is not an ideal picture of what a judge should be. And when we look at cowboys, people who make up their own rules, as or many of whom are in government even today, we see a brand of human being that is not what God would have us to be, to put it mildly. I'm not certainly not suggesting that every judge or every cowboy, as far as that goes, is a rebel along these lines, or that Judge Roy Bean didn't do some good. I'm sure he did. But what we basically look at here is a man who establishes bullying tactics, like the Diotrephes example that's given to us in 3 John verses 9 and 10, a man who establishes order, not just so that order could be had, and certainly not for the glory of Jesus Christ, but rather so that he can be in charge. And to a large degree, that is the goal in and of itself. It's not simply having law and order. It's having law and order with me in charge of it. Some of that is a lack of faith in your fellow human being. In the case of Diotrephes, it's a lack of faith in the apostles, which is to say a lack of faith in Jesus Christ. And anytime we try to establish order in any authoritarian situation, whether it's the family, whether it's the church, whether it's government, it needs to be for selfless reasons and not for reasons of promoting one person's power simply for the sake of having power being an exploiter, being one who takes advantage of others, maybe not necessarily to their immediate and significant detriment, but someone certainly who is using the circumstances at hand to feather his own nest. That sort of person has no business in leadership in general and certainly has no business in leadership of the Lord's church. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3.3 that one of the attributes of an elder candidate should be a lack of greed, a lack of boisterousness, he is not pugnacious. He's not going to pick a fight, certainly not for his own personal benefit. And when one is caught 
doing inappropriate things in this kind of position. He says later on in chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, that you make sure you have your witnesses in order. And when those witnesses are in order, you rebuke that person. That is not appropriate behavior for someone who is watching over the people of God. Pragmatism has its place. There's certainly nothing wrong with getting the job done, but it is not a goal. We're not looking for the easiest way to get the job done as we may define getting the job done. This is about serving God. This is about submitting to his rule. Uzzah was very pragmatic, I'm sure, when he reached up to stay the ark that was stumbling on the cart that had been prepared to carry the ark, which was inappropriate in and of itself. But nevertheless, Uzzah was trying to make sure that bad things didn't happen, but he didn't do it in God's way, and God struck him dead. The text says in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. It's not about making sure that we get the job done. It's about submitting to God and trusting that his way is going to be best. Ultimately, we are in his court, not in the court of some human being. He is the one who's going to judge us, and we trust that he is going to judge us fairly and respectfully and mercifully if we will trust in him and go in his way. The least we can do is mimic his behavior in dealing with others in our positions of authority rather than imposing our own will for our own purposes. So if anybody out there can recommend a good book on the topic of Judge Roy Bean, please feel free to send your recommendation along. In the meantime, though, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. When I was growing up in Austin, Texas, in the 1970s, I was surrounded by cowboys. I watched them play football on Sunday afternoons. I watched them shoot bad guys on Saturday nights on TV, not in person. But more than anything else, I heard them on the radio. Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings were in the process of reinventing country music. And Austin was the epicenter of their revolution. I did not fully realize that at the time. I was 12 years old or whatever. But I came to appreciate more later on the impact of this kind of music, not just on Austin, but on the entire country music industry. All I knew was that when I would sit in the backseat of the car or lie down in my bed and hear Willie sing, My heroes have always been cowboys. Suddenly, I was huddled around a campfire, listening to a guitar, maybe a harmonica, listening to the cattle lowing in the background, hearing the wonders and the blessings, almost the magic, of a lifestyle that was never really going to be mine, but that certainly was noble and that was to be claimed, if at all possible. That's what a hero is, after all. I've come to reevaluate that particular song and that particular mentality as an adult, as I distance myself from the folklore and the mystique of the cowboy image and look at what cowboys actually were, even in the context of the song. The focus on self, the complete rebellion against societal ways, disregard for anybody else's way of thinking, and even rules of engagement. Living life as a cowboy 
whether it is that sort of cowboy in the literal sense, or whether it is one of the other hundreds of manifestations of cowboys that we have seen in the last hundred years, especially in pop culture. Batman is just a cowboy in a fancy outfit. Star Trek is wagon train in space. There are all kinds of cowboys in all kinds of places, all basically holding to the same life objective, all basically holding the same set of values. I know what's best. Leave me alone, I'll take care of it. There is certainly something to be said for stepping up and being counted, and I don't want to dismiss that at all. But this cowboy mentality, the vigilante mentality, the superhero mentality, does wonders for a person's ego, especially when we succeed. But it is not God's way. It is not within man who walks to direct his steps. Jeremiah tells us, chapter 10, verse 23. We are not a law in and of ourselves. We have a vested interest in other people. Simply denying that does no one any good and harms society in the long term. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we're supposed to have this mindedness, which was also in Christ Jesus. Like he was, we are supposed to be focusing on the needs of others and not our own personal needs. Jesus' disregard for his personal interest took him away from heaven and took him to the cross. This is the example that we are supposed to have, that Paul tells us that we are supposed to emulate in our lives. It's not about finding a way of life that works for us. It's not about finding a way of life that puts us at peace with ourselves. The peace of God that passes all understanding comes to us through Jesus in his way, in his time, Philippians 4 verse 7 tells us. It's very easy to be like the Laodiceans, whose lifestyle no doubt was very different from the lifestyle of the stereotypical cowboy. They're rich. They're comfortable. They have need of nothing, they say. And in their comfort level, however they may achieve it, whether it is through a campfire or whether it is through a lot of money in the bank, Jesus says, your comfort is deceptive. You don't have anything if you don't have me. And so he tries to make them uncomfortable. He tries to help them appreciate that the way that they have chosen is wrong for them. Jesus has something better for us than the cowboy lifestyle. It's time we embrace it. So, at the risk of offending the late, great Waylon Jennings, mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. This is what I've been playing. People ask me all the time, Hal, what is your very favorite board game? Board games come up a lot in conversation. Which one's your favorite? My favorite is Great Western Trail. I don't generally bring that up in conversation because it's a topic that will take three weeks for me to properly explain. But since I have three weeks in the build-up to my favorites episode, episode number 100, I'll go ahead and take the three weeks and tell you a little bit about this game. I love everything about this game. It is a cattle trail game, as you might suspect from the name. What you're doing is you are collecting a herd of cattle, and you're driving it to Kansas City to put it on a railroad and take it out to hungry beef eaters all over the country, all over the world. And there are various ways that you can build up your empire, basically, either by making a better cattle herd, that's the obvious thing, or you can build buildings that will assist you in various ways. You can improve your railroad empire so that you can transport the cattle cheaper from here to there. 
bottom line is you're trying to build the biggest cattle empire that the Old West has ever seen. The thing that I love the most, I think, about this game, though, is its variability. Every game is different because every game setup is different. The buildings that you can stop at along the way are going to change in their position. The buildings that you yourself build are going to change depending on circumstances. The people that are available to hire in the various tasks that you put them to work in are going to change. Their availability, their cost is going to change. The different jobs that can be assigned to these people are going to change. The different objectives that you can meet to get extra points is going to change. And one of the great delights in my mind is finding new and different ways to approach this game so as to milk it for all of the enjoyment and all of the value that it offers. And that brings me to my daughter, Taylor, who thinks otherwise. After I'd played this game two or three times or whatever, I decided Taylor needs to learn this game. She'll like this game. I teach the game to Taylor. She beats me. Game one, if you knew anything about our gaming lifestyle here in the family, you would not be surprised at that. Taylor wins a lot. Taylor beats me a lot. That's fine. This is the kind of game that she would be good at. Hurts my feelings a little bit because I taught her the game. She doesn't seem to respect that, but whatever. So she beats me again a second time. She beats me five times in a row playing this game. She triples my score one time. This is starting to get aggravating. And it's not just that she's beating me. It's that she is beating me the same way every single time, which may say more about me than it says about her. But in any rate, Taylor's approach to this game is the easiest and simplest way of acquiring points, and it's all about points in the end. The easiest way is to buy cattle. And the easiest way to acquire cattle is to hire a lot of cowboys because they will let you handle a bigger herd. They will let you handle a better herd. They get you better prices at the market. It makes sense all the way around. So you hire a lot of cowboys, you buy a lot of cows, you win the game. Very straightforward strategy, very effective strategy, very popular strategy. And clearly it works for Taylor. And what I try to tell her as we continue to play this game is there are other ways of doing this. The way that you are doing it is pretty predictable. I can work around that. I can expect that certain things are going to happen. I can try to keep you from getting where you want to go. I can put barriers in your way. And I know where you're going to go, so it's easy for me to do that. That would be a better argument if I won more often. But I don't win. She continues to win anyway. Her position, and it's a perfectly defensible and understandable position, is why should I change the way I do things when I win 90% of the time? And I'll grant you, it's difficult to argue with success. But my approach to Great Western Trail and my approach to my relationship with Jesus Christ also is not so much a matter of making sure the job gets done in the short term, but rather understanding the game as a whole, understanding everything that's going on and learning and growing and developing. As long as Taylor continues to play the same strategy over and over again, she will not grow in her understanding of the game. That may not be that big of a deal. And if she continues to win 90% of the time, I suppose it isn't that big of a deal. But with regard to Jesus Christ, with regard to our walk with Christ, what we may consider to be a winning game plan, what we may consider to be a successful strategy, may not be the only way or even the best way or even the best way in the short term to do the things that Jesus is asking us to do. One of the great struggles that I have as 
a preacher, is encouraging people to expect more out of themselves, to strive for greatness, which so oftentimes people seem absolutely uninterested in doing. Paul speaks to people that he loves and admires in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 10, talking about their brotherly love, the thing that is taught to them by God to do. And he tells them, I urge you to excel still more, do better than you're doing. It's not that you're not doing well, you are doing well, but you can do better. And everything that Jesus tells us to do, from loving God to loving our neighbor to worshiping in spirit and in truth, everything that we do can be done better if we work at it, if we will apply ourselves, if we will push ourselves, if we will try to learn our role as Christians, our roles as servants, our roles as disciples a little bit better than we knew how to do yesterday. God is the one also, remember, who is going to be defining who wins and who doesn't win. Your successful strategy in the local church, your successful strategy in Bible study, in worship, whatever, just because you see it as successful, that doesn't mean that God sees it as successful. Remember the one-talent man in Matthew chapter 25, verses 24 through 30, who thought he had the perfect strategy. He was perfectly satisfied with the way that he had served his master, and his master condemned him, fired him, punished him because he was judged as being lazy. That's the master's job to judge. It's not our job to judge our own work. It's his job. And so we had best look to how he is going to examine us and examine ourselves in the same way. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 4, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. We can fail this test. We need to make sure that we don't. However well we may feel in the short term isn't necessarily all that relevant. All of us have been in school and gone through a test and thought we did fairly well, only to find out that the teacher believed otherwise. The teacher, the professor, the examiner, these are the ones whose opinion counts. Such is the case certainly when we answer before God. It's not about being comfortable with the way that we do things. It's not about finding a zone, finding a rut that we can stay in. In many ways, it's exactly the opposite. It's about making ourselves uncomfortable. It's about getting ourselves out of our ruts, having confidence that there are better ways to do things. And if we continue to serve in the same exact way as we always have, we will probably wind up short of our own potential and maybe even short of God's expectations of us. Oftentimes refer to Ephesians 5 verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That's the Christian life in 10 words. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Trying to learn, not trying to implement, trying to learn. Finding new and better ways to play the game in God's way. New and better ways to show Him how much we care, how grateful we are, and how determined we are to succeed in His eyes and not just in our own. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.